Hello, my name's Justin McClure. I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're being even more self-indulgent than usual. Because we're talking about our home, Toronto, Canada. That's right. For this week's episode, all we did was stare out our windows. (laughs) Yep. Looking at the CN Tower out in the distance. The only tall thing in this Canadian wasteland. We watched the movie we call Life. That's right. We went out into the streets... Made notes. Yep. We, we did the director hand thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. the w- thing that Ron Howard does on his masterclass ad. So Toronto is a place where me and Will live. But what else is it? How do movies portray it? Well, Toronto is not often portrayed in movies, and yet it is often in movies. Mm-hmm. Toronto is often referred to here, not by anybody I know, but by uh, people in government and the film industry as Hollywood North. I've never heard any person say that non-ironically, but yes, it's true. People in the biz do say that. It is a place that has had tax credits. Yeah. And so many American productions will come up here and use it, use its uh, vaguely city-looking streets to as facsimiles for, I don't know, New York, mm-hmm. Chicago. And look, we're a great city for that. We have our own shitty Times Square. We have yes. our shitty Wall Street. We have our shitty Central Park. We've got... Uh, everything that you need. Nondescript that kind of looks like something else. <laughs> yeah, but if you want to have kind of a textureless, flavorless New York in your movie, uh, in fact, I believe the movie Chicago was actually shot here in Toronto. <laughs> and the thing about Toronto on screen is that people never call it Toronto, like you said. And the reason for that is that most productions are shamed to be shooting in Canada. And I think most American (laughs) filmmakers think that Americans don't want to see movies set in Canada. Why? I don't understand. What difference is it? Because it's foreign. You may as well set it in France or something, you know? (laughs) So so you think that people are like, ugh, they just like knock their TV over like Elvis if a movie takes place in Toronto? You know, there are two American movies I can think of right now that are set in Canada. One of them is The Whole Nine yards the second one is the love guru okay yeah i was gonna say the third one was scott pilgrim which we'll get, <laughs> that's we'll, right we'll get so we got three there oh god we could have watched the love guru for this but of course like everybody i'm used to seeing movies like police academy <laughs> which is set in some american city but if you've seen police academy 3 you'll remember that steve gutenberg and his chums are jet skiing at the end in lake ontario <laughs> that's right or a uh, death wish 5 <laughs> Or uh, I had a great experience seeing the movie Kick-Ass at the Scotiabank Cinema, Mm -hmm. where people in the movie see a movie at the Scotiabank Cinema. Yes. But but of course, it's not in in Toronto. Set in New York. Oh, man. I once went on a date with a woman that she starred as a child in the last two Charles Bronson film. I believe it was like Family of Cops. Holy shit. And I actually went home and watched the trailer afterwards. There she was, as a very small child. Wow. Did she say how was Charles Bronson nice? He said he was nice. I mean, he was on the doors of death. He passed away pretty much right after that. Uh, oh, also, who could forget Suicide Squad, which took <laughs> over this city just a few years ago. That's right. Uh, it was filming a, a Batmobile chase not that far from my apartment, so I myself got to witness the Joker-mobile uh, skid past the Eaton Center. Wow. Brush with fame. Very exciting. And the theme of all these movies that we're mentioning is Canada is exclusive. 
excluded. Mm. They are not mentioned. They are not spoken of. Toronto feels like in every city, and yet no other city looks like Toronto. Mm. I mean, we we have a very... Uh, our, our city architecturally is this bizarre mix of 70s brutalism, crumbling Victorian era houses, and shitty gimmicky architecture. And for people that haven't been to Toronto, it is almost hilariously small in its downtown core. <laughs> like you can walk from one end to the other in pff, 30 minutes, like from north to south. No wonder it's so expensive to live there now. <laughs> Yep, exactly. Ah, they should build more giant condos. It's also, uh, as I watch films that are shot and sent in Toronto, I realize realize a city that is constantly changing. It's a city, of course, with no clear identity, Mm -hmm. uh, except that it's Canada's biggest city. Yes. And, you know, like so many Canadian towns, Toronto has done things over the years like, well, let's have the world's tallest building. (laughs) Uh, Let's get Frank Gehry to design an art gallery. Oh, God. Things that will turn us into a a real city. Without any thought of how the end result will actually look and the way people will have to live around it. And I'm speaking, of course, about the museum you just mentioned, (laughs) that it cannot be looked at without, it's like, someone doodled that on a napkin. Well, now they have to close the sidewalk because icicles, (laughs) deadly icicles form on it. Sorry to any architecture fans who are listening to this podcast. (laughs) It's not our area of expertise. But actually, (laughs) so Toronto Films, ones that are set in Toronto, we just watched three for this podcast. Ripoff, Last Night, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. And I think I want to start with Ripoff, only because it's the one that the least people know, and it's also one that I think it's probably the most Canadian feeling out of all of them, and there's a few reasons for that. This film that came out in 1971 was the second feature fictional film of Donald Chabib, the director of Going Down the Road, the quintessential Canadian film about a bunch of um, hosers going to Toronto and finding it a harsh, unlivable city. To those who don't know, Going Down the Road is our easy rider. Yes, pretty much. (laughs) And so their follow-up, which came out, I believe, only one or two years later is a proto Porky's 10 years before Porky's came out. And much like Porky's when you watch it, it's actually not that funny. No, it's more of a coming of age. Yeah. And unlike Porky's, which I feel that um, the people making that one, not Canadian, Bob Clark is accepted by Canada. Ripoff is more interested in being a drama. I think there's no like big comedic gags or anything like that. I was interested that you chose this one because it has some very evocative shots of Toronto in in the early 70s, but Toronto is also kind of a structuring absence in this film. But I think what interested me about this film is that it takes place in Toronto and just the mere fact that they live there is just part of the character. And one of the interesting things about it is that the last third is all about them getting out of Toronto and what that means. Right. Toronto is representative of well, it's it's the big city mm-hmm. in this movie, but it also represents adulthood in some way and conformity and giving up your dreams and that sort of thing. So this is a movie about these four uh, high school chums uh, who, you know, instead of wanting to go to college, they instead want to start a commune. Yes. Uh, but you say that as if that is like the driving plot of the film. It's yeah. not really because I think it takes place over a year. It doesn't have a, a heavy momentum. I mean, they no. do go to college and they experience something of college. But really, it's about them just in high school and this last year before they go to college mm-hmm. and trying to decide what they want to do with their lives and their parents being like, you know, what job do you want? Mm-hmm. And I think one of them's like, eh, maybe I'll be like um, a handyman or something like that. And his dad's like, a handyman? Mm-hmm. What? Ugh, terrible. 
terrible. They want to start a band. Yes, they want to start a band. And I think this movie, when I watch it for the first time, its Toronto-ness also comes out of the fact that when I watch it, it just makes me think of my dad, who did grow up in Toronto, Scarborough to be specific. But when he tells stories about Toronto, it's always of him being in the downtown core. Mm. And Toronto, for me as a kid, and I'm going to try to link every all these movies to my own personal experiences. When I was a kid, it was always something very far away, because I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Orleans, which is like part of Ottawa, but not really Ottawa. And we would go to Toronto to visit uh, my mom's brother uh, every few summers. And it felt like such a big, giant, unknowable thing to me. Like, I remember asking Mm -hmm. my cousins, you ride the subway by yourself to go to school? Mm -hmm. Aren't there crazy people on there? Like, it was unfathomable to me. I was just at a a family get-together in Aurora, Ontario today, and more than one person said to me, oh, it must be odd being in Toronto now because it's so dangerous there now. (laughs) And it's really funny because, like, Toronto is almost the least dangerous city, like, big city that I've been in. Certainly in the downtown. Yes, Uh, in the downtown. Uh, Maybe on the outskirts, it's a little bit more dangerous, but in the downtown, it's brightly lit. There's always a few people walking around, but it's not empty like a a city street like Ottawa. It's extremely expensive downtown. Yes, I know, but that's why you don't live. There's public transportation. They can take you other places. (laughs) But... What is interesting about Ripoff is that these kids just live in the suburbia of Toronto, probably newly built when this film was shot. An interesting thing about Toronto history is that, uh, so Toronto is currently, I think, technically the third largest city in North America, but that is only if you count all the suburbs, because in the 90s, we had this thing called Megacity, which was this (laughs) thing that was uh, cooked up by the conservative government so that they could get a few more seats provincially, where they would combine the downtown and the suburbs, uh, North York, Etobicoke, Scarborough, uh, York, and have them all be one gigantic city. And they called it Mega City, patrolled every day by the judges, <laughs> led by Judge Dredd himself. That's exactly how it works here. <laughs> oh, yes. And it has led to horrible consequences. T- consequences that continue to this day and that nobody wants to solve. Uh, we can thank uh, the Mega City for Rob Ford. <laughs> yes, essentially. And what it has led to is this uh, very strong divide between the downtown and the suburbs. Mm-hmm. But in something like Ripoff, because the suburbs are so new Mm -hmm. there's even specific shots where you see the city and just pans down a little bit to reveal all of these clone houses that just stretch on into infinity another classic canadian film from the 60s nobody waved goodbye Mm -hmm. is about this suburban kid who uh, decides to uh, instead of going to college you know leave his home behind and go straight to a life downtown Mm. and there are disastrous consequences to that. But also in that movie, a lot of it is set in Etobicoke, which is really new at that time. It was all farmland before that. (laughs) Well, that's what my dad used to say. He's like, oh, you know, the subway stop, it was like 10 stops shorter because after that, there was just nothing. (laughs) Right. So as alienated as you can feel in Etobicoke from the downtown now, Mm. I'm sure it was, it it might as well have been another country. (laughs) But in ripoff, these four kids, like you said, they just live in Toronto Mm -hmm. and Toronto has not changed that much watching them like they're at Nathan Phillips Square, which looks exactly the same. <laughs> that was an uncanny experience. Yes. That. And this film is particularly Canadian 
because it deals with our favorite topic, failure. Because <laughs> these characters are essentially failures. Mm -hmm. And every decision that they make in this film, which sometimes you'd expect to have like this crazy comedic twist, usually just blows up in their face. Like specifically the scene where they get replaced as a performing band by a band from New York. Mm -hmm. Of course, America coming in, sweeping in, kicking those Canadians to the curb. And they try to pull a prank on them. And the Americans, it just makes them look cooler. It has a bit of an inside Lewin Davis quality, except yes. unlike Lewin Davis, they're not that talented. No, they're not. <laughs> they're just a bunch of Canadian losers, like I guess all Canadians, who the film climaxes with them getting all their friends together because this is their last hurrah before they go off to school or do whatever happens after high school. And they go out into the woods. Timmins, which made me laugh because that's close to Ottawa, seven hours away from Toronto, mm -hmm. <laughs> where they live in the woods and stuff is miserable. Then they come back home. Like all great Canadian films, it exists only in bad looking copies. Yes, uh, uh, it exists only in YouTube rips that played on the Showcase channel, probably at 2 a.m. in the morning because Canada had rules that you had to have a certain amount of Canadian content. <laughs> so a lot of these Canadian films only exist because... They had to find something to put on the air. I mean, like, Going Down the Road is funny because that film is only a hit because it played at a New York film festival at the time and, like, made some buzz. Mm. And then Canada's like, oh, maybe there is something worthwhile here. <laughs> and unfortunately, Rip Off, which was their attempt to be more commercial, nobody got any attention. So no VHS release, no DVD, mm. no Blu-ray, no nothing. <laughs> I was looking at the Wikipedia list of movies that are actually set in Toronto, and it's smaller than you think it would be, mm -hmm. given how much film production goes on here. And it's always a, a rare treat for me to see a movie that's set in Toronto, because there are so few movies that are sort of about what this city mm -hmm. represents. And it, it's sort of interesting to see these movies and be like, okay, has, has somebody had the same experience with this city that I have? A few years ago, there was Denis Villeneuve's movie Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal, which depicts Toronto as this very alienating condo Hell hellscape. <laughs> Uh, and I, I liked watching that movie because it was like, yes, this is... You know is... what? Because I've always had the opposite reaction to Toronto. I grew up in Orleans, and then I lived in a small French town, and then I lived in Ottawa, and then I moved to Toronto. And I have to say, those first three places, I never felt at home in them. Mm -hmm. I felt like I couldn't travel. I didn't like it. And when I moved to Toronto, I was like, ah, I can just go wherever I want, mostly downtown. I'm white, I'm male, no one's going <laughs> to bother me. But it also felt... Not welcoming, but it felt like very understandable in a way that when I go to New York, it's like, ah, it's big and crazy and it's fun mm. to explore and stuff like that. Not welcoming, yeah. but it's not like you can't get comfortable in it. Yeah, I, well, I mean, as much as I'm ripping on Toronto affectionately, <laughs> yes. uh, I do love Toronto and I've spent 90% of my life here. You so know? you lived not in Toronto, but in the outskirts of it, those suburbs that you were talking about. I lived in about. Etobicoke, yeah. And Toronto downtown was always so exciting and exotic when I would go there, mm -hmm. you know, with my parents on the weekend or something. You know, in high school, downtown Toronto to me represented this this adult place yeah and I would go down on the weekends and see you know grown-up movies or things like that <laughs> Jerry Lewis on stage I did see Jerry Lewis on stage <laughs> in, in Damn Yankees but like you know when I was in high school you know I'd go downtown and see things like I don't know Grizzly Man or mm -hmm. 2046 or stuff like that like stuff you couldn't see at the Etobicoke theaters and I there was definitely a feeling kind of later in high school where I, I sort of felt like god I really want to go like live down. I want to be at U of T right now. You well, know? you know, it's kind of weird that I ended up moving to Toronto because while I was uh, in college in Ottawa, it was not a thought that really crossed my mind. And at the time I started dating a woman from 
uh, Toronto. And it, I didn't move because of her, but I think she opened the doors to like, oh, you could live here. There are not many opportunities in Ottawa. And it always felt like Toronto is the big city. I had a friend that lived there in college and I visited him and I went to Suspect Video and I rented a pile of DVDs and like, wow, I can't believe how much stuff there is. But it didn't seem until then like a place where you could actually live. No, I think it yeah. felt too far away. It's like, you can't yeah. move all the way from Ottawa to Toronto, even though it's five hours. Yeah. Because you don't know anybody there and it'll be like different. You won't have you know, a net to protect you. And I'm sure like any kid who moves from the suburbs to the big city uh, for you is probably exciting to like become part of communities that like-minded interests. Yes. Like it took a while because when I moved to Toronto, I went right into getting an internship and working at like a production company. And I didn't make friends there because mm -hmm. like I'm an intern. I'm not that good at my job that I'm trying to do all this TV (laughs) stuff. And it was only later when I started hanging out, like going to movies and stuff like, and really discovering the stuff that felt far away that I suddenly realized like, oh, I can meet friends at a movie theater, which is how I've met all of my friends in Toronto, <laughs> literally. I mean, in the mid 2000s to late 2000s, there were certain film related community hubs that we don't have anymore. Yeah. But they were like the Bloor Cinema, mm-hmm. Suspect Video, uh, uh, even the Royal Cinema, which yeah. is still around. I was always on the outskirts of those things, but it felt like they were always there as yeah. well. Like you can go and hang out there. And I would say it's probably even stronger now as far as like community goes yeah. but we'll get into that a little bit yeah, later yeah Red Heart's still going strong <laughs> you know <laughs> ah the Cineforum so we also watched last night and this is like those top five Canadian films yeah ev- everybody and well okay we say that everybody, everybody loves this movie but it is actually not very well known <laughs> no it isn't outside of Canada but it's by Don McKellar who's a writer director actor multi-hyphenate in Canada he's been he in, won a Tony for a play that's right he did the drowsy chaperone yep <laughs> which was a big Broadway hit and uh he's known in Canada for among other things his TV show Twitch City oh so good the pre-space space <laughs> it's a very very funny show uh, in fact Edgar Wright is a big fan I think of Don McKellar yeah he said based on last night and it was weird they didn't say twitch shitty the show that felt like it beat space to the punch by like a decade almost <laughs> don mckeller was also in adam mcgoyan's exotica mm-hmm. uh, just a strange career he you worked know? with bruce mcdonald a lot mm-hmm. he stars in roadkill he wrote some of his films and co-starred in them he's a writer director actor who always seems like on the cusp of like something great in the sense that he's always working, but it almost feels like he can't follow a path long enough mm. to like for people to go, ah, yes, this great director, Don McKellar. Well, it's like he wrote Blindness, mm-hmm. the Fernando Meyeras. I heard he was going to work on a film with Park Chan-wook for a while, but that mm. was like a decade ago. Mm. They were hanging out together downtown. But Last Night is his directorial feature debut, and it's a film about... The world is ending on the millennium. And this is actually part of a series of films that were funded by a French company that I think probably the only one people would also know is The Hole mm-hmm. by... Sai Ming Lang. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. But I would say Last Night's probably even more famous than that one, mm-hmm. or well-liked by people who see it. Probably, yeah. And what I just said is essentially what it is. The world is ending. It's not specified what it is. It seems like the sun is exploding or something like that. There's no darkness. No, there's no darkness. Yeah. And everyone has accepted that the world is ending. There's no people being like, oh, maybe it's just like a government farce or anything like that. It's just a reality that at midnight, the world is going to end. So everybody's just kind of doing their own thing and figuring themselves out. And there are little pockets of stories that we visit, go in and out of. 
the unifying figure is Don McKellar as this sort of everyman. Allen-esque. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Woody Allen-esque. Well, as I was watching the movie, I was thinking that, you know, watching this, you'd think that Don McKellar would have become our Woody Allen, mm-hmm. but that didn't happen. Ah, Canada um, can't support any kind of filmmaker long term. <laughs> no. He visits his family and they have a tense family reunion that night. Meanwhile, there's his childhood friend played by Callum Keith Rennie of Hardcore Logo and Twitch City (laughs) and he has decided to have sex with as many different kinds of people as he can before the the year has ended and then there's Sandra Oh who um, is trying to meet up with her husband that she just married two months ago to do something that you learn very quickly um, is supposed to bring them together and then you got uh, Canada's own David Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah, playing a man, an executive at the gas company who is spending his waning hours calling every customer of the gas company to thank them for their service or thank them for their business over the years and to assure them that the gas will keep flowing until the end. Mm-hmm. And so all these stories all start independently, all start connecting with each other until they reach very kind of um, nice climaxes. Many American critics observed what a Canadian apocalypse this was. Uh, there are some riots, there mm. are some pillagers, but for the most part, everybody is very politely behaved. And you get the sense that that's because people have known that this was going to happen for a long time. So if there was giant riots that happened, it's past, and it's kind of the inevitable that's arriving and there's that sense in the movie of what would you do if Mm -hmm. you knew the exact moment it was going to end how would you like to go out and this is a toronto film through and through there's streetcars there's they're all over the toronto streets i have a very mild personal connection to this movie because a lot of this movie was shot in the weston neighborhood around weston road and lawrence in the the york suburb and uh it's a rather dilapidated area now My, my mom had an office there and i I do remember seeing the overturned car, Sandra O's overturned car on the street when it was filming. <laughs> My mom also has a story that she accidentally walked onto the set of this movie and Don McKellar was very nice to her. It's so weird that Don McKellar would be the one to get involved and talk to her, the director and star of the film. Well, because she literally... As opposed to an AD. I think my mom was very busy and harried, and she literally just walked onto the set, and he was there, and he said something like, what are you doing here? Oh, really? Yeah, that's my mom's brush with greatness. And some uh, ADs were fired. (laughs) Action. Uh, I think Don McKellar was having trouble shooting in Weston. Uh, and I like that he chose Weston as the site of the apocalypse, because mm. if you go there now, it does look like the site of the apocalypse. <laughs> that's where all the shootings are now. I mean, this is a film that's just like great. To deconstruct it would have to be to explain why it's so much fun. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's like stuff that you kind of have to discover on your own. Yeah, it's like killing something in order to dissect it. Mm-hmm. It has a very unusual tone. It's sort of funny. It's yeah. sort of serious. But it's, it's that failure Canadian tone. Mm-hmm. It's that you feel like every character, there's not much victory going on. It's mostly them being like, well, I guess this is my lot in life. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, I'm going to die at midnight. and There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> Before we get to the grand finale of this this episode i want to address just almost like bullet points a few other movies that are set in toronto mm-hmm. there's obviously the films of david cronenberg toronto is this as i said every city that looks like no city and it has this uncanny quality when you see it on screen and i think david cronenberg with his strange dreamlike movies taps into something of that quality like there's something off kilter about his movies that is reflected in the fact that it has this city in it that looks like it should be familiar and yet it isn't Mm -hmm. you know just look at dead ringers or videodrome chloe 
<laughs> by Adam McGoyan. Uh, almost all of Adam McGoyan's films are set in Toronto. Well, Exotica uses Toronto as like, okay, it's this placid city with this rot underneath. Yes. You know? <laughs> um, whereas Chloe, it's like, oh, look at this sexy city. <laughs> look, look at the sexy gray city. Yeah. Uh, Chloe, of course, is the movie where uh, Liam Neeson gets a hand job at Allen Gardens. I've never visited Allen Gardens. Well, I, well if you do, someday you'll, get a see, hand job. you'll see a lot of school groups there. I was going to say a statue of Liam Neeson getting a hand job. <laughs> it's very busy there. Okay. Although I guess we do find out at the end that uh, it was uh, all a dream or so- yeah. something stupid like that. I mean, like if that. you search a list of films set in Toronto, it is a pretty pathetic list that comes up like you said there's take this waltz which is yes. kind of like lifestyle porn mm-hmm. that that's the the movie that's set in like the cool like little portugal neighborhoods uh, and you're like ah yeah sarah Pauly has not had to uh struggle to pay a bill for a long time that's the one where seth rogan is the guy who writes uh, chicken cookbooks yes he's only gonna write one chicken cookbook and it's like building up to it that's right it's actually a pretty uh, good movie like about it, yeah. like relationship straining and what it means to find your like not in love with someone anymore or is it that or is it just the promise of the new mm-hmm. that is interesting and I think it's a it's a difficult film but a really good one with a great Seth R- uh, Rogen performance Canada's own and uh, scenes at the Royal Cinema I believe uh, is it? yeah oh. they, they go on a date to the Royal Cinema um, that Daniel Radcliffe speaking of the Royal Cinema uh, what is it it's called the F word and then it got its title changed it got its title changed to what if in America yes. which I haven't seen actually. and it, that is also set in Toronto I also want to mention The Silent Partner one of my favorite Canadian films bank heist movie with Christopher Plummer and Elliot Gould a lot of it sat at the Eaton Center yes. which looks remarkably unchanged Mm-hmm. And a film that was made during a time before a lot of the construction took place in Toronto. So you can see Christopher Plummer and Elliot Gould driving on these like highways with barren cityscapes behind them or walking down the street with like a lot of construction happening around them. And it's an interesting time capsule. All right. So let's move to the meat. What people want to hear. The definitive Toronto movie, at least of our lifetimes. <laughs> it's Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Oh, man. Remember when this movie was filming? Uh, yes, I do. Because all of my friends were in the movie, but I wasn't. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like literally all of my friends. <laughs> including I was, my- ha- I was having a good time during those party scenes. It was like an it's a mad, 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 mad world. <laughs> they just spot uh, the cinematographer of Teddy Bomb, Pierce Dirk, standing <laughs> right beside Michael Sarah at one point going, yeah! <laughs> uh, and just like this movie itself, an ex-girlfriend appears in the film multiple times because she changed her hair color to appear as different extras. Wow. And this is a movie that I have not only a personal connection because it represents eh, kind of a side of... Uh, basically the same age I was when this movie was coming out. I love the book and I remember reading it from the Ottawa library as it was coming out mm. and having to take it out. And I remember this because I lost one of them and had to pay for it. Summer of 2010 was a big Scott Pilgrim summer for me because I read all six of the comic books <laughs> yeah. that summer. I was 21 years old at the time. I was in Toronto living in living the, the dream, hanging around the annex neighborhood where most of this movie is set I had the exact same level of masculinity as Michael Sarah did. <laughs> Looked a bit like him at the time, I yep. think I, I would say. I mean, we both share the same thing is that I also was hanging out at the annex because I was at the Bloor all the time mm. with my friends. Ah, the Burger King around the corner. And at that time, when Edgar Wright started filming Scott Pilgrim, he was doing a bunch of film screenings at the Bloor. Mm. And that was the brief contact I had with him was I went, hey, can I make some short films to advertise your stuff? And he went, sure. 
And then, so I made a bunch of stuff that played in front of all the films that he introduced. I remember those screenings very fondly. Like he showed, I think, Police Story, yep. Drunken Master 2, Dames, the Busby Berkeley film. That's right. Um, and it had this very kind of intimate community atmosphere there. Yeah, it wasn't sold out by any stretch of the imagination. There was like a couple hundred people there. And, you know, he would come on stage and mm. sort of casually uh, sort of shoot the shit with the audience. That uh, led to one of my most surreal celebrity sightings where after the first screening... Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winston was there and she left the theater and a fan came up to her with a copy of Final Destination 3 which without looking she signed and I was like where did he get a copy of Final Destination 3? How did he know Mary Elizabeth Winston was going to be there? Well, you'll remember Sonic Boom was next door at the time, so perhaps he, he ran, like ran in. in. Got it. Get me your fir- best Mary Elizabeth Winstead movie. <laughs> so my um, contact with Edgar Wright was brief. He would send me emails sometimes on Facebook being like, hey, can you cut that scene out? Because uh, it's a little spoilery for the trailer. I was like, sure, no problem, Edgar, my good friend. Oh, I almost forgot. Before all this, I was one of those fans that... It was a screening of The Evil Dead on 35mm. Scott Pilgrim had not started filming yet. And I was walking through the line and I saw Edgar Wright and went, Hey, Edgar Wright, big fan. And then I had an awkward conversation with him where we're just chatting about stuff. And it's like, I have to leave at some point. Like, he doesn't know me. It's like, oh, I'll see you. (laughs) Imagine how many conversations like that he has with Justin DeClues around the world. Well, there's only one Justin DeClues. Let's be honest. (laughs) You're right. Forgive me. Oh, do you remember the screening he did? It was, he called it the double Bill Pope. And it was his yes, cinematographer of the film, Bill Pope. It was two films by him, Army of Darkness and Team America. And what I remember about that was it was a really terrible print of Army of Darkness and Bill Pope afterwards saying something like, this is how we always dreamed of this movie being shown. Just barely audible sound, fuzzy picture, 30 years later. Bill Pope was amazed at the Italian DVD of Army of Darkness that I had him sign. That's <laughs> the like muscular ash up in the air, if you've ever seen the cover yeah. for it. So yeah, Scott Pilgrim was was like a big part, not of my life, but it was like on the outskirts of it. Well, as I was watching it this week for the first time since it came out, I realized how symbolic it is to me of just a whole moment of my life. Mm -hmm. That crazy summer of 2010. Uh, I mean, it was a significant time for me, my last year at university. Uh, I definitely felt like a real Torontonian at that time. Uh, honestly, folks, I don't want to get into all the reasons why the movie is significant for me. It's none of your goddamn business. <laughs> Whoa, but, they didn't ask you. <laughs> but it's a, it, it felt very, it just brought back all sorts of associations about uh-huh. the life I used to have. But you, I think you look back at your life with a kind of sadness. So you're like, ah, it's not like that anymore. Well, I mean, I wouldn't trade my life now for that. Yeah. But there is a certain like lost innocence of that time, right? Well, I mean, as I was watching the movie, it felt a bit melancholy. Well, it felt like a weird mix of emotions because so much has happened to me since then. <laughs> yeah, you started two podcasts. That's right. Yep. I mean, I mean, I, is there anything else? I'm the most, <laughs> I'm the most famous Torontonian now. Can't say that back then. So I remember when I went and saw Scott Pilgrim for the first time in theater, so excited, and I saw it and I went, eh, it's too much stuff. <laughs> Oh, Which wow. is shocking to hear from me. Well, I mean, we had a divergent reaction because I saw it. And, and you loved it, right? I was like, this is my life. <laughs> I was like, and hey, Michael Sarah is so unlikable in this movie, not realizing that that's who we were. We weren't likable. That's interesting because I've seen a movie called Teddy Bomb, which yes. I-, I may say uh, appears to have some influence. Yeah, not really any influence. It's just that me and Edgar Wright, I think, have the same influences. Mm. So he has money and I have no money to make my <laughs> movies. But the only advantage that I have over him is that mine are only 75 minutes to 85 minutes. No kidding. My God, Scott Pilgrim's two hours long. Yeah, Scott Pilgrim is a movie that, like, 
it's eating too much candy all at once. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, Edgar Wright's like just he just wanted to adapt the books as good as he could and because of that it doesn't translate to a movie he has seven fight scenes that go on forever yeah and it feels like more of a boys movie than it did at the time yeah to me i mean the the romance yes i mean not great mary elizabeth winstead is essentially a nothing character paper thin and she's not like charismatic or charming and they made a decision and that was that at the end of the original movie he didn't get together with mary elizabeth winstead mm. he got together with knives chow another like a baffling mis- like decision. Yeah. Scott Pilgrim should end up on his own. That's what the movie's building up to. And I mean, the other big difference of watching the movie now is that like, I'm not Scott Pilgrim anymore. <laughs> That's right. Not in my own mind, at least. No. <laughs> if you are, I'd be like, well, uh, I think we need to talk. Yeah. And those places don't exist. Honest Ed's, all that stuff is in there. And you know, it sounds like I'm being negative. I love Scott Pilgrim. I like it. And it just like watching it over that two hour. I mean, but what I like and you like, like this is the shit like, uh, like whippy camera moves, so much yeah. style that you can shake a stick. Very at. energetic Very and full energetic. of visual ideas. Ugh, so exhausting. <laughs> exhausting. Yeah. I, it's not a movie that I find particularly funny, but I find it fun. No, you know? yeah, it's fun. I don't think it's funny either. Like, there's no big like. <laughs> like he's, he's much funnier when he's working with Simon Pegg. Ah, oh, he would hate to hear that. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. It's true. <laughs> and I, it's funny because like somebody brought up Speed Racer which came out a few years before Scott Pilgrim. People were like, ah, Scott Pilgrim, like it's redefining how you do movies. People were like, oh, Speed Racer did it first. And at the time, Edgar Wright's like, uh, let's not talk about that because Speed Racer was such a big bomb. Interesting. And they yeah. didn't want to associate both of them. And guess do, do Scott think- Pilgrim was also not successful at its theatrical run. Do you think he was influenced by Speed Racer? I don't think so. I think that he probably like it's just the same like bigger than life kind of style. Mm-hmm. Like all the like um word balloons and stuff like that. That's very kind of Edgar Wright-ish. And what's funny about Scott Pilgrim is that it would also be how I would adapt the movie because Edgar Wright is he's admitted himself he's not a video game guy mm-hmm. and I'm not either. So the aesthetics would be just like what we had growing up <laughs> that you would implement. Another thing that struck me about this movie watching it now was that it feels a bit dated. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a bad way necessarily, but at the time it felt very fresh cutting edge to me it's like what do you think felt dated about it well the things it's nostalgic for like super nintendo and that sort of thing aren't the things that today's young kids are are nostalgic for like it feels a bit like if this movie came out right now Mm -hmm. i would look at it and say oh this is an old man trying to be hip i feel like that is still the things that dominate like super nintendo genesis Mm -hmm. because i think we've talked about this before that the internet came out of time that the people who like those things continue to dominate it Mm -hmm. so those things are not popular on like a level that me and you do not interact with. Yeah. <laughs> but to my eyes, that's all people talk about. Well, like about. it doesn't have any like social media stuff in no, it. No, that's, that's true. Yeah. I don't even think about that. There's no Facebook, no Twitter, no nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that may be a result of, because those things existed when the movie came out, that he was adapting the books mm-hmm. that came pre that kind of stuff. Yeah. And even Scott Pilgrim, the movie when it came out, it's not like Twitter was what it is now. No. Or, or, or the, even Facebook. Or there was no Instagram, I think. Or if there was. There's an AOL joke in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's freezing it in time in that moment. And yeah, I watched this movie and I'm reminded of just like my lifestyle at the time, like these these shitty houses that you lived in with yeah. roommates. Uh, you would see friends working as baristas places. All your friends were white people. Yeah. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. This movie is so white. <laughs> yep, It's insanely white. Yeah. And something interesting, I was listening to the commentary and Edgar Wright was talking about the fact that they made the city look like. Brian Lee O'Malley drew it 
And what that meant to do was they actually simplified a lot of stuff. Like they simplified trees, they simplified mm. parks, they even simplified the way buildings look. So it's more of a memory than the way it actually exists, where it would be much busier. Interesting. And I think that's reflected in it. And I think that nostalgic pull for me and you is like looking at that and being like, ah, yes, there's the pizza pizza on the corner um, from the Bloor and Honesteads. I believe the pizza pizza's still there. Yes. But nothing else around it is. Oh, so sad. <laughs> yep. I just want to go to Suspect Video again. Uh, or what is it? Uh, no account video in uh, the Scott Pilgrim universe? Right, because they wouldn't let Brian Lee O'Malley draw there. <laughs> yep, remember? that's right. <laughs> that one clerk probably um, has not lived that down still. Do you remember around this time the movie came out in Mervish Village there was a big Scott Pilgrim block party I was there for the release of I don't believe it was the movie it was the the seventh book the seventh book came out around the same time as the movie yes and I was there and I remember walking in the Suspect Video and talking chatting with Pierce so we probably crossed paths Suspect Video had a big sign up that said no account video (laughs) did it I don't remember that yeah vindication for Brian Leo I mean let's be honest Honest Ed's is a place that I did not visit very much because it was scary and I didn't know where anything was except for used DVDs yeah Honest Ed's was not great as a store, but great as a thing at the corner. Actually, I bought the suit that I wear in the Shaun of the Dead short film that I made for the right stuff thing at Honest Ed's, the red tie and the white shirt and the black pants. And that shirt was, I guess, filled with toxins because I had like a a rash (laughs) across my neck from where it touched my skin. Oh, man, folks. Now, these are the real Toronto memories. (laughs) I guess it's about time we close the discussion because we've been everywhere in the city. Now. <laughs> That's right. We've been north, south, east, west. Yep. Wait, we didn't. Um, we haven't been to Yorkville, have we? Oh, Chloe. Oh, that's right. Chloe is set at Yorkville. Um, uh, Jane and Finch is the the movie How She Moves. There's your Jane and Finch. <laughs> I don't movie. know what that movie is. It's a dance movie. Okay, so that's check right. that out. And um, what's the definitive Etobicoke movie? Uh, I don't know. Oh, nobody waved goodbye. So there, <laughs> we've covered the whole city. I don't know what Scarborough is. So, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters, and as per usual, you can send us any emails, questions, comments at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com and this first letter goes this horrible summer hey icc team i love detour sorry i know that's a thing you have to say in any email to you guys (laughs) all right we're putting it down you don't have to say that anymore but thank you everybody we got it yeah everybody before this good everybody after this bad (laughs) and we'll judge you no no come on (laughs) (laughs) that's funny because will's playing the good cop in this scenario and i'm the bad cop which is not how real life is all right so we're both bad cops And the letter continues, I'm curious for your thoughts on the film industry after this summer. It looks like Disney has taken half of the summer box office and the only non-franchise movies to gross more than 50 million are the new Tarantino, Rocket Man, and Yesterday. Literally, that's it. Plus, Disney announced anything they release that isn't a giant blockbuster or an Oscar contender is going straight to streaming. So, was this summer an anomaly, or is this the ball game now? I mean, Disney has already run out of popular cartoons to remake, and Star Wars, and the Avengers are wrapping up. So maybe next we'll see real movies again? Thanks! I love Detour! Chris Berube. Well, Chris, very optimistic to say that Star Wars is ending, because <laughs> Star Wars is going to outlast all of us. There That's will be Star Wars movies forever. And is this an anomaly? No, this is the future of the- theatrical screenings. What's funny about this is that, like, even someone like you, Will, you said, ah, this movie's good, but would I want to go to a theater to see it? Some of that has to do with how bad the theatrical experience That's has right. become. I mean, you go see a movie at our downtown multiplexes. They don't mask them for yeah. the right aspect ratio. It's digital 
digital projection, yeah. which doesn't look as good as film. That's right. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to pay $14 to see that, or do you want to see it on Netflix? That's right. So, yeah. you know, you're going to have to go watch Netflix, where it will be lost in the... Until Disney buys Netflix, of course, which is going to happen. So, I mean, I think the way of the future, frankly, is that you're going to have one or two theaters in every city, and mm. they're going to be owned by Disney, because yep. there will be no laws at that point. <laughs> yes. Antitrust laws will be gone. I mean, are there antitrust laws now? Because they don't seem to be taking any kind of effect. And they'll show big Disney product. But I mean, I, I do wonder, uh, we, we, we talk a lot about this cultural monopoly that Disney has, and I wonder how long it's sustainable. You know what? Nothing is sustainable forever. And there mm. always comes a collapse point where mm. people go, I'm tired of this. Like, I don't want to watch this. It's really interesting to see what the Marvel movies, because now they have nothing recognizable to people mm-hmm. and maybe they can make all of them hits. Sure, that's fine. But it's also that kind of the sameness of them come from one man and his team. So once those people leave, because egos come into play. Like, look at the Sony Marvel thing that's happening right now where Sony's like, hey, did you see how much money Venom made? We can make Spider-Man movies now. It's like, no, you can't. What are you talking about? So that's going to fail. I do wonder, is the next generation of kids going to want to catch up with 20 Marvel movies to follow the next 20? No, they are. They'll have to deal with that at some point. Yeah, I don't think that young people will care. But the big difference is that we lived in a time that all of our entertainment was funneled through these mega corporations. And now it's also more all over the place. People make their own tribes and discover their own stuff. But sometimes movies come along like uh, Get Out mm-hmm. or, or Us or something like that. Or even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that become big hits. I think because there is some, there is still appetite for things that are different or unusual. Yeah. It's just about a studio getting behind that thing mm-hmm. and letting people know that it exists. That's, that's the thing that studios don't want to do. And like Blumhouse has the model that they spend as much in marketing as they do making the picture mm-hmm. so they can have those successes while every other corporation probably owned by China at some point, <laughs> uh, they, want to make a giant hundreds of million dollar blockbuster and then it make a hundred million dollars and that's not going to happen like it can't sustain itself yeah i don't know i think this generation will not see the theatrical experience as special are we, we at the pictures of a revolution tipping point well if we are i don't think it's going to be in movies no you like, don't think so like i don't i don't think the theatrical experience yeah, the, that, that's what i mean like it's good i mean it, it sort of is happening in streaming and stuff because yeah. prestige tv and mm. Um, you know, Netflix stuff has already overtaken a lot of films. It's, it's the same problem that streaming is going to collapse as well because it can't sustain itself. Well, I mean, God, there are so many streaming services. Yeah, now. and there's no money to go around to pay for them all. They're all venture capitalist uh, organizations. That money doesn't exist. Oh, yeah, like they're all paying $500 million for for stuff with money they don't have. They, they don't have. Yeah. So listen, all that stuff is going to collapse. Books will become popular again, printed books. Right. The Amazon will burn, so there'll be no more Oh, paper. yeah, there's environmental collapse. <laughs> coming up <laughs> yeah. soon so it's all irrelevant yeah. like it doesn't really matter <laughs> why even watch movies or be entertained yeah movies suck all right well thanks for sending that letter chris uh, i'm sorry we couldn't be more positive but uh, you know it's a great movie impossible horror available on <laughs> blu-ray check it out and listen some people like gold ninja video are <laughs> pushing forward the uh, hope for for a good cinema that's so, right support them you'll always have interesting movies to watch can you watch impossible horror on streaming right you now? can you can go and buy it for like a couple bucks and watch it streaming at home check it out folks. yeah check it out movies are alive and well so this week on our patreon we talked about i know people have been asking a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> us a lot about this the three stooges 
not imitation or ripoff, just kind of like them, the Ritz Brothers. The comedy team that Pauline Kael called her favorite. Yeah, funnier than the Marx Brothers, I believe was the sentence that she used. And the Ritz Brothers were very influential in their day. We'll explain how. And we watched one of their most beloved films. <laughs> I beloved. Guess. Their most watched films. Right, which is not that watched anymore, but it's The Gorilla, co-starring Bella Lugosi. All right, let's not say any more. People need to discover this comedic troupe for themselves by becoming a Patreon subscriber for $5 a month at patreon.com slash The Import Cinema Club. Also, I forgot to say it in the last two episodes, but I have another podcast and people are like, ugh, another one. This one is different. I have partnered with Bay Street Video, an actual brick and mortar video store in Toronto, which has an insane selection. And me and the product manager, Mark Hansen, go through all of the Blu-rays and DVDs being released every week. You may not buy Blu-rays or DVDs, doesn't matter. This is a podcast to like, you can just learn about movies that you haven't heard about. Like when I go through it with Mark and he's much more knowledgeable about new stuff than I am, you will learn that there are dozens of movies being released from around the world that played at all sorts of film festivals that you have never heard of. What's the podcast called? It's called the Bay Street Video Podcast. And you can go, I believe, soundcloud.com slash the Bay Street Video Podcast. Check it out, yep, folks. Every week on Fridays. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we talk about a topic that has been often requested, actually. Mm. Albert Brooks. Ah, yes. Love him in The Simpsons. <laughs> and uh, I guess his SNL shorts? Not really familiar with anything else. Not Finding Dory? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Love Finding Dory. Well, he's also a filmmaker, of course. A beloved auteur. Mm-hmm. Not widely beloved, but beloved by those who know him. Yeah. What are those comedians? Uh, comedians, just like the Ritz Brothers. <laughs> Real life, lost in America, defending your life, mm. uh, what, what, mother, m- mother, uh, looking for comedy in the Muslim world. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to talk about who Albert Brooks is. Are his films funny? Of course they are. And we're hopefully going to, you know, shed a little bit more light on him. I actually haven't seen. I've seen all his like great films, but there's a lot of the like, mo- like I haven't seen Mother, which mm. people were defending recently. Okay, check out Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World. Okay. I swear it's funny. Really? And <laughs> that's not a popular opinion, but... Oh, oh, wow. I've seen it. I think it's very funny. I will check it out. So, until next week, my name's Joseph Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here. Before we move on to the back matter, I'd just like to thank some new Patreon subscribers, which include Sideburned, AJ Katsinas, Adam, and Scorch Dugan, as well as a hack fraud who moved from the $5 level to the $10 level. Thank you very much for being supporters. We couldn't do it without you. There was a Blu-ray that I saw this week on the shelf, and with my meager funds, I looked at it and went... Uh, I gotta get it, because if not me, who? I'm familiar with that feeling. (laughs) And it was Kino's release of um, Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Oh, directed by the great William Bodine? (laughs) Yes! Subject of a Patreon episode, William One-Shot Bodine. William Bodine is the ultimate hack. Oh, the ultimate hack. He's made 400, 500 movies, and he prided himself on doing everything in one take. He started as a very famous and popular director in the silent era, fucked up his career, and then he made a lot of movies in the 40s and 50s with, like, the Bowery Boys and Bella Lugosi. <laughs> yeah, and Three Stooges ripoffs and yeah. uh, Sammy Petrillo and Duke Mitchell. And he would basically just park the camera down and let it roll. Yeah. And he ended his career with a pair of movies 
Billy the Kid versus Dracula and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's Which daughter. Which I would say, and you said this as well, made his career. That people would not be talking about him today if he hadn't made these two pictures. I agree, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because the titles are so outrageous. And then when you find out that this is how he ended his career, that had all this other stuff. You know, he made Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he made Charlie Chan movies. He made movies with Mary Pickford. So much. Yeah. But none of this. And it all ends here. Yeah. And it... it because none of those movies are great, which is yeah. why nobody talks about them. But these movies are so weird that that's why they stayed in people's imagination. Now, any man, like you mentioned, uh, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Which I have seen. And that's the more boring one. Yeah, I hated it, which is why I've not seen Billy the Kid. You still Dracula. haven't seen it? No, but I'm going to get this Blu-ray. Okay. It's got a commentary. Got it. It, it does have a commentary, and it's actually a great one. I mean, Joe Bob Briggs did one when it was released on DVD, but it was a little bit more comedic. Yeah, I've heard that commentary. And this one is, like, very knowledgeable, and they talk about, like, ah, yes, this prop was used in King Vidor's, like, <laughs> and the film looks better than it ever has like it's insane looking good movie no john carradine's in it as dracula right yes he is and he's funny um it feels like william bodine has never seen a dracula movie dracula's just walking around during the daytime that's funny because i would assume he's directed like 20 of them (laughs) they're like you have to kill dracula with this iron nail (laughs) and put it through his heart it's like like, okay sure whatever i guess they didn't have a wooden stake handy yep and every time uh john carradine gets a close-up a red light comes onto his face that's the good (laughs) shit okay folks my pledge to important cinema nation i will see billy the kid versus dracula a film by william bodie i mean i'm sure people are shocked that you have it at this point it may actually shake them to their core they're like who is will sloan oh no (laughs) 